All right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. If you're new with us, good to see you this morning. Let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. morning this morning we find ourselves in John 8, and it's a real brouhaha. Uh, Jesus gets into the most heated confrontation of his ministry with the scribes and Pharisees, it's a confrontation that started when Jesus declared himself to be Yahweh, the great I Am, light of the world, in verse 12, and Messiah of Israel. And it ended with his enemies picking up stones to kill him for blasphemy, verse 59. And so this, as we study John 8, understand that the whole chapter is built around Jesus' declaration of divinity, which led him going four rounds, the way we've kind of described it, led him to going four rounds with the Jewish leaders. Round one we have called light and darkness from verses 12 to 20. Round two we've called light, excuse me, life and death, verses 21 to 30. And we are currently in round three, which we've entitled freedom and bondage. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The Greek is aletheis, which means truly. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, guys, as we said last time, it's possible to believe in Jesus and yet not believe in Jesus. And I realize that sounds like a contradictory statement, but it makes perfect sense when you realize that not all faith is saving faith. We know, of course, what James said in chapter 2, verse 19 of his epistle. He said, you say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and tremble in terror. And, of course, in Matthew chapter 7, you might want to turn there. I'll have you turn to some of these because we got a lot of ground to cover, and I'll just read you the others and write down the references. This is a pretty important one, though, to make our point about how some people have faith, but it's not saving faith. Of course, in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So very important section of scripture because here we realize these guys, whoever are talking, Jesus is talking to, they weren't atheists and they weren't agnostics. These are churchgoers. And they're orthodox in that they call Jesus Lord. So obviously they were going to churches who were teaching the truth. But as Jesus said to them on the day, will say to them on the day of judgment, I never knew you. You went out and practiced lawlessness. In other words, you came to church, you heard the word, but when you walked out those doors, you didn't do anything with it. You had no real intention of living it. And that's the key. This was not uh, an occasional sin that true Christians can fall into. This was a lifestyle choice where you bring God into your life to make yourself feel good about yourself or maybe there's some business contacts you want to network with people in church. But when you leave this place, you really have no desire 
to actually put into practice what you've learned from God's Word. Look, the difference between believing in Jesus with your head, which is superficial faith, often rooted in religion, and then believing in Him with your heart, which is where saving faith takes place in the heart, which is then rooted in a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. The difference is the difference between bondage and freedom. Bondage and freedom. Here Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, who were very religious. In fact, they were religious zealots to Judaism, but who did not have a relationship with Christ based on saving faith. They didn't want one. It wasn't that they didn't have the information, they just didn't want to they didn't want to receive Jesus as their Savior, their God, and so on. And um, so they had religion, very zealous, but uh, did not have a relationship with Jesus. And as such, they were still in bondage to their sinful, fallen nature, and ultimately in bondage to the devil himself. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, as you remember from chapter 3, Jesus had, had talked to another Pharisee named Nicodemus about the need to be born again if he was going to enter or be a part of God's kingdom on earth and enter into heaven someday. Well, Nicodemus, we believe, did eventually receive Jesus or put his faith in Jesus and was born again. But there were probably some Pharisees in this group that it says believed on Jesus. We'll see that in verse 30 in a second. Uh, but even though they believed, they didn't have saving faith. Nicodemus did. But that's the point, okay? Not all faith is saving faith. And this was something that you need to understand. This was something the Lord Jesus Christ was driving home to summon the crowd who heard him preach. And in verse 30 tells us, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. The question is, yes, but in what way did they believe in him? Or in other words, what exactly did they believe about him. Well, we read in John chapter 2 that some of the people believed because he was a great miracle worker. John 2:23. We read in Luke 7 verse 16, many believed that Jesus was a great prophet. And of course in John 7 verse 41, we read that some of them believed he was Messiah. So some even went that far. And even though all that was true about Jesus, that was all true about him. They believed a lot of right things about him. But what they believed wasn't enough to save them. Guys, a person can believe a lot of right things about the Lord Jesus Christ and still remain lost in their sins and hell-bound if they don't believe he is God in human form. Not a God, one of many the God Almighty, eternal God. John 8, 24, we just looked at it a few weeks ago. If you don't believe that I am, that's the name of God. Check out uh, uh, Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. That was the name God said was his name from the burning bush. If you don't believe that I am Jehovah God, Yahweh, you will die in your sins. The idea is you'll go to hell. This is an essential doctrine for salvation. And Jesus, guys, was only interested in people having saving faith. That's the only kind of faith that matters. Saving faith. The only kind that will get them into heaven. And he wanted them to understand right here, this group that heard him, 
and said, we believe in you, Jesus. And he said, well, that's great. Let me talk to you about faith. And he launches into this little teaching. He wanted them to understand that true saving faith will have fruit. Didn't he say that in Matthew 7? That his disciples would be known by their fruit, Matthew 7, 20. And that is why the Lord went on to say to those who believed in this crowd, quote-unquote believed in him, verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Indeed. The Greek word translated abide is meno, and it means to continue or to remain. To continue or to remain. Look, John whose gospel we are currently studying, went on to tell us in his first epistle about some who didn't abide in Christ. In 1 John 2, verse 19, John said, and I'll paraphrase a little bit what he was saying, he said, many have gone out from us. They have left our group. They were going to Christian churches and things, but they've left the Christian faith. But that proved they were never really one of us. Because if they had been one of us, genuine Christians, disciples of Christ, they would have remained with us. They would have continued in the faith. That because they have left the faith, they've forsaken Christ, it proves they were never genuine disciples. And I'm convinced that John has in mind when he wrote those words what Jesus said right here in John 8, 31 and 32. Please understand something. I don't want to confuse you. Abiding in Jesus, which means continuing in the truth of his word, listen, isn't the condition for attaining or even maintaining salvation. It is the evidence of a person possessing salvation. Some Christians read this and go, if you abide in me, Jesus talking, you're going to be saved. No, that's the evidence that you are saved. Again, the Bible warns that not all faith is saving faith. And Jesus would later say to some of these very same people he's talking to right now that verse 30 tells us they believed. He would say in just a few verses, uh, verse 34 of John 8, he would say that they were still slaves of sin. Guys, you have to understand something, that one of the, the goals of salvation, and we've talked about several things that God was wanting to accomplish by saving us. And keeping us from going to hell was a nice byproduct. It wasn't number one on the list. He had the key to save us. By saving us, yeah, we, we don't go to hell, but that's not the reason. He Primarily why he saved us. He saved us for fellowship. that We might be then true worshipers. But one of the benefits was he saved us to be free. I mean, this is something we're going to hit pretty hard next time. We have to understand that when the fall occurred in the Garden of Eden, some very important things happened. One of them was man lost his freedom. He was no longer a free moral agent, not really. Yes, he still has the ability to choose Christ or reject him. God didn't let the devil take that away, I'm convinced. But in many ways, we became the slaves of the devil who now controlled us through our fallen nature and how did he do that? He programmed into our brains through the music and the TV and all the ideology being preached at us. School is a big one today, starting at the elementary level all the way up through college. These are brainwashing indoctrination centers for the most part. And I know some of you are Christian teachers. God bless you. 
you got your work cut out for you. But the devil, for all the years before we got saved, was pumping into our brains. He was brainwashing us with anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible propaganda. We didn't even realize it. We thought it was our stuff. Oh, we're so smart. I'm, I, I believe this. I'm so enlightened. No, no, the devil was pumping that into your brain. As a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. The devil knows if he can control your thinking, he can control your living. And that's why the first thing that God tells us once we get saved is, don't be conformed to this world's way of thinking any longer, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You get transformed by, the, transformed by filling your mind with God's word. That works to unbrainwash you from Satan's lies by filling you with God's truth. And that will then uh, allow the Spirit to motivate and to move you in the direction of godliness, fruit-bearing, and ministry for God's glory. People who are still slaves of sin, I don't care if they go to church and call themselves Christians, if that is the pattern of their life, they are not saved. Because Paul said in Romans 6.22, once you're saved, you've been set free from sin. And you have fruit now, fruit of holiness. Jesus talked about those when he talked about the parable of the sower, how uh, people go forth to sow the seed, which is the word of God. And when they do the seed, which is all of us, we sow the seed. When the seed falls on different, uh, will fall on different hearts, and he likened those hearts to different kinds of soil. He said one of the hearts, one of the soils that the seed falls on the word of God, the gospel, is a shallow soil which had bedrock a few inches below the surface. And these seeds, uh, they germinate real quick. And because there's, they can't go downward, because there's not any room to go, all the energy shoots upward, and they dwarf all the other planets, uh, plants, plants, plants around them. And you think, wow, this is a really healthy you know, crop or whatever, corn, or not corn, but wheat or whatever. But see... Because there's no depth of root, when the sun comes up, it scorches it, withers and dies. Can't get any water. Jesus said, these are the ones who come forward, receive the word with great joy, but then when temptation arises or some kind of persecution because of the word, they fall away quickly because they had no rep depth. There's no root there. I've, I've seen people come forward to pray to receive Christ, and there's tears streaming down their faces. And we pray, and they are beaming. They have a great emotional experience. And initially, they are in church like every time the door is open. They're here. But after about six months, they, you don't see them as much as you used to. They're still coming. But then after a few months, they, that gets even less. And finally, it's like they're, they're not coming any longer. That's happened over the years. And then somebody will show me a Facebook thing, because I'm not on Facebook. Somebody will show me a Facebook post by somebody that used to be here, and they're, you know, posing, uh, you know, in a very provocative way with a beer in their hand, you know, and they're gone. Well, are they backslidden? I don't know. They're backslidden, they'll come back. Could be they're gone forever because they were never really genuine. So we have to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith, right? Didn't Paul tell us that? 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Uh, make sure you examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Look, theologians have identified three elements from Scripture that they tell us are inherent or endemic to true saving faith. Now, as I was studying this, these uh, theologians described these words using 
the Latin. They put these words in the Latin because we all know everything sounds more important in Latin, okay? <laughs> right? Um, but since most of us, including myself, are simpleton schmoes and not theologians, I'm just going to give them to you in English, okay? Here they are, three words, knowledge, assent, and trust. Three elements of saving faith. Knowledge, saving faith begins with knowledge, as in the knowledge of the gospel. Well, that's obvious, right? This is the intellectual component of saving faith, which involves an understanding of the basic biblical facts regarding salvation. Once a person has heard the gospel and possesses the basic information they need with regard to salvation, that they're lost and need Jesus to save them, that then leads to the second element of saving faith, assent. Assent. The idea behind assent is to accept or to agree with the facts of the gospel. That mankind has been separated from God due to sin, and in that condition is doomed to spend eternity in hell. Now, there's a lot of folks that know the gospel. They grew up in church, but they don't agree with the facts. They don't agree with those facts. But hear me, there are a lot of folks that do know the gospel, and believe the facts of the gospel. They know that they are lost. They know Jesus Christ is the only way. They, they have the information, and they agree with the information. Yet without the third and final element of saving faith, they will still wind up spending eternity in hell. And that third element to saving faith is trust. Trust. Without a person taking the third step, they might have faith, but it won't be saving faith. Look, every demon in existence, even in including the devil himself, knows the gospel and believes the facts of the gospel. Okay? Every demon in existence, including the devil himself, knows what the gospel is all about. Uh, that's what they're fighting against. Okay? They know the facts of the gospel. Do they believe the facts that if a person who has fallen, a son of Adam, a daughter of Adam, if they will believe in Christ, repent, and receive him, as, do they believe, Satan and his demons, that that person is going to be saved? You bet your life he believes that. That's why he's trying to keep people away from the gospel, to keep them in darkness that they're lost forever. But listen to me. You can believe you can know the truth and believe the gospel and still wind up going to hell because you, you need to do that third part. You take that third step, okay? Uh, again, to be saved, a person must know the gospel. They must accept or give mental assent to the facts of the gospel. But if they don't personally appropriate or put their trust in Jesus as their Savior, they will not be saved by the gospel. Folks, it's at this very point that the devil has caused millions and millions of people down through the centuries to be deceived and damned. They go to church, or have gone to church at some time in their life. They've heard the gospel many times. They genuinely believe that they are lost sinners and on their way to hell. But they stop there. They never take the next step in personally putting their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Why is that? What is holding them back from going all the way and being saved? It's the belief that by simply knowing the facts of the gospel 
and believing those facts, that is all they need to get into heaven. They have been deceived by the devil into thinking that salvation takes place in the head and not in the heart. But it says the old saying goes, many people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The difference between their head and their heart. Now, back in John 8, I want you to look again at what Jesus said to these people who had come to believe in him. He said, if you abide in my word, it proves you are my disciples. Not, it will make you my disciples. And so abiding in the word, and again, it means continued obedience to the truth of God. Listen, is the evidence that a person truly knows Jesus as Savior. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, John really, I love John. Of course, I, I love all the writers in the New Testament because they just, they, they didn't worry about feelings. They didn't worry if I write this down, I might hurt someone's feelings. So I better not say this, you know. Uh, you know, they didn't read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. They just gave the truth and whatever. You either received it, you rejected it, but that's the way it is. It's the truth, right? And John says, look, there's a lot of folks that say, I know him, First John 2, 4. But they don't keep his commandments, his word. And the Greek is they don't continually, continually or continuously keep his None of us keep the commandments of God perfectly. We've talked about that. But we're talking about people who really don't keep them very much at all, if ever, Okay. Yet they call themselves Christians. Obviously, they go to church. John says, look, anyone who says, I know Jesus, praise God, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I go to that mega church down the road there. But they're not continuing in keeping God's commandment. John says, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. I would think that somebody would rather be called a liar now when they have time to get their life right with God than to wait until they stand before Jesus and hear him say I never knew you depart from me and then it's too late to change and that's the problem with the modern church in some ways the church is so busy trying to tickle ears and be man pleasers it's not giving people the hard truth anymore for the most part oh you have good pastors out there who do God bless them but you have many who are so busy trying to fill seats and, uh, and not offend the biggest givers that they will seek to placate, not preach to penetrate. You know, Jesus talked about, if you abide in my word, he didn't say words in John 8, 31, I think, or 32, 31. He just said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And um, I believe that he used the singular because he was really talking about himself. If you abide in me, okay, because John started his gospel by telling us Jesus is the word, uh, right? Jesus is the word. And by abiding in Jesus, you abide in the word and vice versa. Uh, look at John 15. You turn there real quick. Since you're in the neighborhood. John 15, verse 7. 
Now here he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So it's, he wants to cover everything, all right? He basically says, if you abide in me, you, you'll abide in my words. You'll do what I have told you, right? And you'll ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples, or the idea is so you will prove yourself to be my disciples. And guys, the word disciples is the plural of the Greek noun matetes, which means a learner, a learner. However, a disciple back then was more than just a student who adhered to the, you know, the teachings of a spiritual leader. They often followed that teacher everywhere he went. In fact, they lived with him so as to soak up everything they could, could learn, uh, not only from what he taught, but how he lived. That was the idea. In those days, disciples really, for the most part, followed the teacher everywhere. Yes, they wanted to hear what he taught, but they wanted to see how he lived because that was very important to them. Did he really live what he believed and taught? And so a disciple was a learner, but the important thing was not the student as much as it was the teacher. And you had a lot of teachers back then that didn't teach the right thing. So the most important thing with regard to a teacher, of course, was what they taught. That's what made a difference in their disciples' lives. And guys, back then there were many teachers who had disciples that followed them around to learn from their wisdom and lifestyle. John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. We know that the secular philosophers all had disciples. And of course, Jesus himself had disciples. The difference back then between most teachers, I'm thinking especially of the secular uh, teachers, uh, and Jesus was that these secular guys taught the wisdom of men, but Jesus taught his disciples the word of God. The word of God. And nothing will transform your life than the word of God, like the word of God, right? It's, it's what was taught that was the really important thing. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, 13, 1 Corinthians 1, the wisdom of man is foolishness. James, in chapter 3.15, made it a little, a little sharper. He said it's demonic. A little stronger, right? Paul said it's foolishness. James says, no, it's demonic. Well, James is another one of those guys of straight shooter, okay? Um, but back in John 8, again, verse 31, 30, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Listen. You shall know the truth. Let me stop there. That is a very important statement. Of course, everything Jesus said was important. But this especially was important because he was saying that his disciples, we have the privilege of knowing the truth. We're privileged to know the truth. Of course, we are living at a time when there are a lot of people who feel like Pontius Pilate who when Jesus said to him on the morning of his crucifixion, I have come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate, the truth, Pilate sarcastically responded, what is truth? And walked away. See, in Pilate's mind back then, as many, in the minds of many today is, there is no such thing as truth, quote unquote. Nobody's got a corner on the truth. Nobody has absolute or ultimate truth. It's whatever you want to believe, that's your truth. And that's it. And we see a lot of that today, don't we? But that's not true. That's not true. There is such a thing as ultimate or absolute truth. But listen, 
It only comes from God in the form of revelation. It only comes from God in the form of re revelation. Turn to Genesis 1. Because in the very first few verses of the Bible, we are introduced to a very important idea, principle. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Listen, then God spoke. In the first few verses of the Bible, we learn that there is a God. He is obviously a very powerful and obviously a very intelligent being who created everything, and this God speaks. You say, well, that doesn't sound like it's so profound. Why wouldn't he speak? No, what's really profound is he wanted to speak to us. He wanted to speak to us. In fact, we learn later on in the word that he desired to communicate his, his, to us, to his, his uh, creation, those made in his image, and did so through, through his word in the pages of Scripture. Now, that is important, guys, because Christianity claims to be a revealed truth, a revealed truth. A revelation is something that is made known to us by God. It is a truth that would be impossible for us to know, to know listen, through our own personal logic or intelligence or normal thought processes. It is knowledge that comes through divine input. This is in contrast to human philosophy, which is a product of man, something he comes up with through his own reason and logic. Revelation is divine truth that is supernaturally given to man from God. Now, the Bible says that God is spirit. We learn that in John 4. God is spirit who lives in the spirit realm, but as God, he can interact with those in the physical realm. In fact, not just God, he's allowed angels to do that too. They live in the spiritual realm, but they can access the physical realm. That is not true with mankind. Man is physical, created as a physical being, and is trapped in the physical realm. And because man is physical and God is spirit, there is no way a physical human being trapped in a box we call the four-dimensional physical universe, there's no way through the use of his five senses can that man poke a hole in the box, climb out, and find God. He's trapped in the physical realm. There's no way he can escape that. I don't care how long he assumes the lotus position and, uh, you know, uh, contemplates his navel and goes, um, you can do that until the cows come home. You're not going anywhere but sitting there going, um. It's not going to transport you into the spirit realm where you're going to find God. You know, many centuries ago, Job wrestled with this, or he, he expressed this, I should say, uh, when he, he posed the rhetorical question, says, can, can man by searching find God? Can man through an intellectual quest find the supernatural God? And of course Job says, no way. No way. And so the natural man, the Bible teaches us, is incapable of knowing the supernatural God unless that God chose to make himself known to man through divine revelation. And that's exactly what he did. And he did this in two ways. Two forms of divine revelation. I'll give you these quick. 
First of all is what the, what the theologians call general revelation, or in other words, the creation. God has given to mankind two forms of revelation that reveal himself. The first the theologians call general revelation. This is the creation. And Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, the physical creation. So that the people of this world are without excuse if they want to reject God. They have no leg to stand on because God said, I have made myself known. I have revealed that I exist so clearly through my physical creation that anybody who looks into the creation rejects me, says that God doesn't exist. I will hold them personally accountable on the day of judgment. And there's reasons why man does this, because he wants to, verse 18, Romans 1, he wants to cling to his sin. He, wants to, he suppresses the truth of God in his desire to live unrighteously. I heard an honest atheist on the radio years ago. He was honest. He said, the reason I'm an atheist because, is because I don't want God telling me how to live my life. I thought, praise God. I haven't heard many honest atheists. And, and he was one. Now, it's not going to cut me slack on the day of judgment, but... Okay, maybe you'll, you know, understand that God needs to be, uh, anyways. Uh, why don't you turn to Psalm 19? Now, I love this one for this very uh, point. In Psalm 19, verses 1 to 3, David writes, the heavens verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. He's talking about the physical creation. Day unto day utter speech, the physical creation does. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language in the entire world where their voice is not heard. In other words, the creation is preaching a in a universal language that God exists. That, that's what the psalmist is saying. It, it just because... Look, God, did you ever wonder why when you open the Bible to Genesis 1, God didn't start off by saying, now look... Uh, I'm God, and I want, you to, I want you to know why you can be sure I exist, right? He didn't start out with the idea he had to prove his existence. You know why? Because he made us intelligent enough to know you can't have a creation, but you have to go through years of, of college before you can have this pounded out of you, or high school and college. God made us intelligent enough to realize you can't have creation without a creator, any more than you can have a building without a builder or a sculpture without a sculptor or a painting without a painter. Some truths are self-evident. You don't need to prove them. And that's why God didn't get into a whole lengthy thing about why we can be sure he existed. We were proof. Because we existed, he had to be there. But there's this universal language that God is pre it's preaching to the whole world of his existence. Yet many in the world reject it. They, they, they cling to evolution. They think that a Big Bang happened uh, 12 to 18 billion years ago. And that's how everything started and everything came into being. Just one accident after another, cosmically speaking, genetically speaking. God is saying that's foolishness. And Paul went on to say that in Romans chapter 1. Um, he said they, you know, they, in, their, in their desire to suppress the truth, they reject God. Um, they're without excuse. Uh, they uh, were not thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. 
because they didn't want God messing with their lives. Now look, as awesome as the creation is in revealing God's existence and power, it doesn't give us any personal information about him, right? You look into the creation, you see, well, he must be, he must be there. Somebody had to made this. There's design everywhere. The universe is gigantic. I mean, this God had to be very, is a very powerful God. But that doesn't give us any personal information about him. And that's why God, in addition to general revelation, also gave us what the theologians call special revelation. Special revelation is God's revelation of himself in Scripture. And guys, this is where God kind of gets up close and personal with us. He introduces himself to us, even telling us his name. We don't get that from the creation, but now God gets up close and personal. He tells us his name, what he's like, what he expects of us if we're going to have fellowship with him. But he also, in the pages of Scripture, gives us a lot of other revelations about things we would have no way of knowing about by just looking at the creation. In the Scriptures, we read that, or God tells us about the nature of man, our fallen condition, sin, righteousness, salvation, judgment, the first coming, the second coming, the kingdom age, the eternal state, heaven, hell, etc., all of those truths came by revelation from the hand of God, made its way into our Bible, which is called special revelation. Old Testament scholar Gleason Archer put it this way, said, and I quote, How then can we know God or his will for our lives? Only if he reveals himself to us. Unless he himself tells us, we can never know for sure the answers to those questions which matter most to us as human beings. At this point, it is important to observe that the Bible presents itself as the written revelation of God. This purports to be a book in which God gives us the answers to the great questions which concern our soul and which all the wisdom and science of man are powerless to solve with any degree of certainty, end quote. It was author and apologist uh, Francis Schaeffer who said many years ago in referring to God, he wrote, he is there and he is not silent. Well, you have in your laps a whole book that he spoke. Turn to Hebrews 1. Quickly, and we'll bring this to a close. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, talks about God's revelation to man. Special revelation I have in mind. Hebrews 1 verse 1, God who at different times and in various ways, here it is again, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. God spoke to the Jewish patriarchs, the fathers by the prophets. Look, the Old Testament revelation, we can include, of course, the New Testament, came at different times and in various stages. It was the progressive revelation of God to man. Scripture is the progressive revelation of God in the sense that it goes from partial to complete, not from error to truth or from truth to error, as some of the cults contend. The word spoke in Hebrews 1 verse 1 is the Greek word apokalypto, and it means to unveil something that was previously hidden. And that's what progressive revelation is, guys. It is the act by which God makes himself known to us incrementally. Incrementally. And without which there could be no knowledge of God. One pastor put it well when he said, and I quote, Here we are, 
on this little planet trapped on Earth, bound by time and space, sensing deep within ourselves that somewhere out there, there is some kind of intelligent being who created all of this. We call him God, but we haven't got any way to attain any information about him. Satan has told us there are many roads that will lead us to this God. So man has invented one religion after another in the hopes of reaching God, but these are nothing more than philosophical systems of faith that come from the mind of man, whereas the Bible says that God at various times and in different ways spoke divine revelation. The only way we can know anything about God, personally. Of course, the ultimate example, guys, of special revelation that uh, revealed God to man more clearly and more completely than anything he had said previously was the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. In other words, the culmination of special revelation was the incarnation. And Hebrews goes on to say that. God who at different times uh, at different times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. So as God was giving special revelation down through the centuries and he spoke in bits and pieces revealing himself through prophets and angels and dreams and visions, right? At one point, God became man and dwelt among us and then we had the full disclosure of God to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, was the Word, Jesus Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to declare the truth. He is the truth. That's why he talks about abide in me, abide in, my, in, the, in the word, abide in my words. It's all the same thing. And that's why when he stood before Pilate on the morning of his crucifixion, and Pilate was kind of, uh, kind of interrogating him as to who he was. They, they claim you're a rebel. You, you have uh, set yourself up as a king. Uh, is that true? And Jesus said, for this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, listen, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who was of the truth hears my voice. What does that mean? Everyone, God knew us all before he ever made us. And Peter says we were elected by God, chosen because of the, by the foreknowledge of God. Now, people, people argue with me, they disagree with this. I'm just going to tell you what I believe. God knew us before he ever made us. In an eternity past, he knew, because he's God. He knows everything. Who would eventually receive the gospel and get saved? Now, he made that available to every man, all people. But he knew those that would receive him. Okay, nobody receives Christ on their own. No man comes to the Father unless, uh, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. The problem is, I don't believe he's just drawn a small group called the elect. I think he's drawn the whole world to Christ. Many are called, but what? Few are chosen. And those that God knew would receive Christ, he chose in eternity past and 
determine their destiny. It's called predestination. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Everyone who is of the truth, here's my voice. Because our hearts are open. All right, we'll close. Back in John 8. Again, Jesus is talking to a group of would-be disciples, people who claim to believe in him now. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Okay? But then the Lord goes on to tell these believers, quote-unquote, in him, that not only will the genuineness of their salvation be proven by their continuance in the truth of God, his word, he went on to say, verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus' statement begs the question, make us free in what way? Or make us free from what? And that's what we want to look at next time. Because that is such an important subject. Listen to me. Knowing the truth of God, the truth that sets you free, is essential if you're going to be victorious, if you're going to be a light, if you're going to bring God glory in this life. There is nothing more tragic than a Christian who has been set free for freedom Christ has set us free, who is not free from everything. And they make excuses. Well, I'm free of most of the old life. i still got a couple bad habits. Some of those bad habits are pretty bad. Why is it that if Jesus Christ came to set us free, he promises us right here the truth will make you free? What does that mean exactly, and how do I get this freedom? What does it encompass? We'll look at that next time. This is a very important subject, and really it's critical to our understanding of redemption, which is all about setting us free, and we'll see that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Father, we ask that you would give us grace to have a voracious hunger for your truth, that we would, by your grace and strength, continue in your truth, that we would be lights in the darkness, that we would walk in victory and obedience, that, Lord, people could look at us, and maybe they won't agree with us, but they can't say we're hypocrites either, because we really do try to live what we believe and preach. Give us grace, Lord. Time is short. The work is great. The laborers are few. Send forth us into this dark world, Lord, but equipped and empowered by the Spirit to be lights. And that means, of course, that we adhere to the truth, that we walk in that light ourselves. So, Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.